0: can't believe we're actually going to talk about this in public. Uh, it, it it makes me feel a little awkward, but but I want to get rid of this sin. I just, I, I want it bad enough. I'm willing to come here. I'm willing to walk into a room a, a, and to hear a presentation on this. God, God, please make me pure. Free me from lust. I, I just, I despise the shame of it. Make me pure but not yet. Um, what, what would I do without this form of comfort? I mean, what would I do when I, when I got down and life was hard and I, just, and I was stressed and I wanted an easy way out? What, what do I do when I feel lonely? Maybe I could just manage my sin a little better. I mean, maybe I could just learn to kind of to back off a little bit, not sin quite as much, not get on the computer as much, not, not call my adultery partner quite like I did. Maybe I can just manage my sin a little better and, and then if I do that enough, long enough, it'll go away, right? Um, and, and why is it really that bad anyway? I mean, I'm not hurting anyone. It, it just helps me to relieve some stress. I'm really getting kind of tired of feeling judged all the time. I mean, God is the one who made me a sexual being anyway. It's not like I chose this. I didn't choose these desires. I didn't choose to find people attractive. I mean, why am I getting such a hard time about this? And and I thought loving somebody and feeling loved and feeling good, I thought that was a good thing. I mean, why are we making a big deal about this? Why is this catching so much heat? Why am I being condemned? And How about this? When you come up with a better way to guarantee that my needs are going to be met, then, then we can talk about changing this, okay? When you can guarantee that what I need is going to be there for me, and I don't have to sin in order to get it, then maybe I'll talk about what you have to offer. I mean, anyway, we're just friends. It's just porn. I don't understand why this is such a big deal. You can't be my only friend. That's controlling. I I really care about them. They make me happy. I can't remember the last time that I felt this alive. When somebody just laughed at my jokes and I enjoyed them and they enjoyed me. How can something feel this good and be this bad? I... I've really prayed about this, and I think this is what God wants for me. I think, we, I think he's okay with this. I mean, I've prayed, and, and I think I've got a piece about it. Um, it. My spouse just wouldn't do what I wanted uh, him or her to do sexually, and how else was I supposed to get my needs met? It, well, Our sex life was a little dry, and I was just looking for a way to spice things up. And so I, I got on the Internet. I did a few searches. I didn't know it was going to lead to this. My life just feels boring. And I like losing myself in the stories. A good romance novel. I mean it doesn't even have to be pornographic or something like that. I just I want a good romance story that I can lose myself in and, because otherwise it just yeah, life is not that good. I wasn't really looking for sex. I was looking for a friend. I just wanted somebody who would care and listen and be there for me. Are you going to tell me you've never noticed an attractive person? Are you going to tell me when somebody walks around and they look good and they just kind of smell a little good that that doesn't get your engine running too? Look, men just need to be stimulated physically. This is just who I am as a man. These are the needs that I have. I can't help this. This is the way God made me. Women just need to be stimulated relationally and romantically. This. As a woman, this is how God made me. I don't understand why, why you're giving me a hard time that I'm just responding to the way that God made me. It just happened. I didn't mean for it to. I mean, it just... You know, one thing led to another. I think I like the thrill of getting away with something as much as, as the sin itself. I like the risk. I like the energy. I, I like what it brings. That... I don't want to admit it but that's fun to me I'm not sure I can relate to real people anymore I mean I've been in this private fantasy world for so long that real people just kind of intimidate me they make me feel uncomfortable it's just so much easier to be in this private fantasy-based relationship I don't feel like my spouse or my friends really know who I am I've been hiding this for so long that, that even when I have a conversation and we try to be real and authentic, I, I don't think they really know who I am. Now look, if I get serious about changing and I actually take some steps here, do you know what this is going to do to my family, to my reputation, to my job? I mean, let's get practical now. Is this something that we can really do? I couldn't hurt my adultery partner. If I tell them their spouse is going to find out, they may become suicidal. You know what kind of jerk they're married to. This could get really ugly. I, I, it would be selfish of me to come out and tell something now. What would I reward myself when I did something good? This is what I want. When I've worked hard and I've achieved something, this is, this is how i reward myself and satisfy myself. What? What else is there that would be as much fun or as enjoyable as as my sin? It's just easier to retreat into my lust when I'm hurt. My lust understands me. It's there for me. It's safe. I can find comfort. I don't have to take risk. I just, I'm not sure I want to give that up. When I lose myself in my lust, it's really the only time that I feel good about me. It's a time when everything seems to be right in the way that I want it to be. In those little moments of escape, of mental vacation, of just being away from everything else, those those are the times when I feel good about myself. Please don't take that from me. Lust is just part of my day-to-day, hour-to-hour life. I'm not sure I know how to think or act or live or interact people without it look I've tried I really have but let's be honest sex is everywhere I don't stand a chance I've white knuckled down and said I was going to do better about this and I really did try but every billboard every commercial every workplace I mean do you think people really can live in a way that honors God in the culture in which we are are you just setting me up Again, I think if we're going to address this subject, we're going to have to answer those kinds of questions. If we're going to interact with one another in a way that is honest, that addresses where we are, we're going to have to say things like that to one another. And when we hear that, we're going to have to have a reply. Uh, Because as we talk about the area of sexual sin, uh, we are... We're interacting with two core parts of who we are as people. Uh, one, we're relational beings. We were made for relationship. A- and sex is part of relationship. And it's, it's really hard to interact without some sense of excitement, of enthusiasm, of attraction. And, and so we're going to have to be pretty realistic about relationships. And the second core part of who we are uh, that we're going to interact with a lot. Is that we were made to worship. We were made to notice things and be awed by them. Just, we're different from squirrels. You know, squirrels don't have catalogs where the finest squirrels and the best furs have their picture taken to make all of the other squirrels jealous. Squirrels don't have hundreds of words. That mean good, beautiful, strong, incredible. Or at least I don't think they do. All they say is. At least from what I can tell. But we have a language that is filled with words of worship. Squirrels don't have Olympics. Where all the fastest, strongest squirrels line up in a line. And the one with the striped fur drops the nut. And they all take off. At least my squirrels don't. If your squirrels do, I want to see that. That's incredible. But. We were made to worship. And the sense of awe and attraction and arousal that we feel uh, during sex and attract—that That is, that is going to interact with these core parts of who we are. As people who were made for relationship and people who worship. And so if we're going to walk through all of those different little monologues uh, that I just walked through. Uh, we're going to have to deal with life pretty holistically. Because you could begin to see that, you know what? Attraction is not going to shrink to one little slice of the pie in our life. It is one of those pieces that because we are relational, and because we were made to worship, it permeates the whole pie. And that means as we talk, there's going to be times when... When you may feel completely overwhelmed and you go, there is no way that I could change what I need to change in order to be who God wants me to be. But then there may also be times when you get very excited and you begin to see, wait a second, I just tried to stop it for so long. And I can begin to see that when I open all of my life up to what God has for me, that change really is possible when I engage it on the scale that God calls me to engage it. And so in order to do this holistic approach, Uh, we're going to go on a journey using nine steps. Uh, These nine steps, our intent for those is that they just capture the gospel in slow motion. That the regular movement of what God does in the life of someone, to bring them to himself and to make them into his image, that's all we want to capture with these nine steps. Uh, Now the first of those nine steps uh, is simply this. uh, To admit that I have a struggle that I cannot overcome without God. Uh, That starts on page 8 in your notebook. Uh, And I think Joshua Harris starts us off on a good step here. Uh, He says about his book, and I would say about this seminar, the message of this seminar is not that I'm against lust, but that I am for God's plan for sexual desire. Yes, lust is bad, but it's bad because because it perverts. What it perverts is so good. Here is my prayer for our time together. My prayer is that this is the most positive, hope-filled seminar on lust that you've ever been to. Because this seminar is for God's design for relationships, for attraction, and for sex. This seminar is also for you. It is not against you. It is for your freedom. It is for your joy but a joy that doesn't come with the aftertaste of guilt and shame and hiding and isolation and fakeness and falseness and retreat into more things that are going to corrode my soul. Now, in this seminar, we will seek to undress lust for the vile and fake thing that it is, because it masquerades as life and joy but it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It presents itself as life and joy, but in fact, it is death and despair. And I think we can see that in the way that it just wreaks havoc on our culture at almost epidemic levels. Our ultimate goal is to learn what God offers. Because as He says in John 10, He came that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. And we want to learn what God offers for one reason alone. We don't want to be satisfied with anything less. Now at the same time, we are taking a journey. Because it would be really easy at a seminar like this to define two points on the map without ever discussing process. We could discuss one point on the map that was just the hellish slavery to lust. And I could describe it vividly in a way that just made you sick and you said, yes, I hate that! And I could describe for you what God would offer and the beauty of it. And you would say, yes, I want that. But our goal is not just to define two points on a map. Our goal is to define two points and the map and the journey. And that's why we're taking these nine steps together, is so that we can see how God brings freedom to a subject like this. Now when it comes to admitting that we have a struggle that we can't overcome without God, I think Steve Gallagher brings up a point that we have to embrace if we're going to get anywhere. And it's simply this, no one deserves sin. Sin is not something to be deserved or desired. It is something to be avoided at all cost. The more a person becomes involved in sin, the less he sees it. Sin is a hideous disease that destroys a person's ability to comprehend its existence. This is where one of the scariest things in the world that we can be is a blind person who believes we can see. Because we will have the pride that says, I know what I'm doing. I know what i got to take care of. Just leave me alone. I can take care of this, all right? It's not that big a deal. I've got it under control. The worst thing in the world we can be is a blind person who believes that we can see. And that is the first thing that sin does in every one of our lives, regardless of which sin that it is. It tries to make us blind to its presence and its danger. Because sin will always try to get its foot in the door by making it seem like a need. By making it seem like it is necessary. And there is probably no sin that is better at making itself seem as a need than lost. Because you can read almost any book, uh, secular or Christian oftentimes, and they will talk about the needs that we have and how they have to be met, and if they're not, and all of a sudden that becomes just this natural walking point into the struggle of sexual sin but as soon as we buy the lie that we can sin responsibly we begin to view God as harsh as unreasonable as somebody who would keep good things from us all of a sudden, he is on the other team. And we have to appease him in order to get to heaven. And so we kind of come and we go to church and we do that thing. But, but really, he just doesn't get it. Because we have become blind to the danger of sin by believing that we can sin responsibly. And in the early part of your notebook, one of the things that you'll find, not worth turning to it now, just listen as we go through, is an evaluation that takes us through What is lust? How does it begin? How does it grow to something that would dominate our life? Uh, And I give an 11 point progression here within that. And it's meant to capture uh, the diagnosis that Jesus gives in Matthew 5. Where it says, "If you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery with her in in your heart. Well, how did he get there? Where does lust start? Well, lust starts with objectifying a person. We reduce people to a few features that we really like. And we begin to measure them. It may be their waist size. It may be their breast size. It may be features on their face. It may be their earning capacity. It may be their intelligence. But we begin to reduce people to certain features and we grade them. We objectify people and then we engage in public visual lust. We just kind of go through our day evaluating people. And you go, wait a second, do do we all do that? Do we really? You see two people together. How many times have you said, wow, they married up. What did we just do? We just had a scoring system by which we evaluated them and said one of those people was better than the other. We just lusted. And it moves from public visual lust to private narrative lust. All of a sudden, we, we let this scoring system become a story in our mind. We begin to place ourselves interacting with those people, wondering if they could like us. What would it be like to be with them? Imaginary conversations. Then we turn to soft porn. Uh, we use television and catalogs to provide very choice, but not nude, um, versions of what it is that we want. And then we have full pornography, uh, pursuing nude images, uh, expanded by professional storytellers and professional sexual athletes. You know, because pornography, sometimes we get all hung up on the nudity of it. But I think one of the things that we'll find here tonight is it's not primarily about the nudity. You can only look at a breast or a penis so many times and get excited about it, it's the story. And we begin to get these professional storytellers who expand the narrative that we could play with. And we get professional sexual athletes who show us what that story could be like. And we we don't watch a football game and think we could be Tom Brady or Eli Manning. But we watch pornography and we think we could do that. Or we watch a romance movie and we wish our life could be like that. We get wrapped up and lost in the story by the professional storytellers and the professional athletes. And then for some people, it begins to move on to where I interact with a real anonymous person. You know, in all of the others, the other person was limited by my imagination or the script. Now there's somebody who can really interact with me in a chat room, in a Something I shouldn't be on in Facebook, in a 1-900 number, in sexting or something like that. And, uh, and there's this sense of suspense about what they're going to say. But it's still at a safe distance because while they're real, I'm anonymous. Then it may go to an emotional relationship with a known person. No touch. Uh, again, it doesn't have to hit all of these along the way. I just want you to hear the progression Uh, But here they have a real name and a real face, and they know my real name and my real face. Then there's an emotional affair with touch, but no sex. Uh, There may be petting, kissing, those kinds of things, but no sex. To be honest, I would say this is probably the rarest of all of the things on the page. Lots of people like to say that it exists when they're beginning to get caught, but the window of this one is very narrow. Uh, Then there's the one-time sexual affair. Uh, the intercourse barrier has been crossed. Um, Now it may be nothing more than a fling on a business trip or a prostitute where there's very little relational connection. It could be the budding part of a relationship. If it moves further, there's an affair in a connected relationship. Uh, If you're married at this point, uh, sex is actually the secondary threat to the marriage. The growing relationship as bond is really the primary threat to the marriage at this point. And I will simply say we don't have time to go into it this evening, but Appendix B, uh, if somebody is you or somebody you know is caught in an extramarital affair and we say, how do we end it? Uh, Appendix B is written for that purpose. And I will simply say this, there is no neat way. If you are in an affair, there are two people who mean something to you and you are going to hurt one of them very badly. And you are going to change the course of your life based on the choice that you make and which one you hurt. There is no neat way around it. There is no better time coming. But at this point, the kind of surgery where Jesus would say, I must pluck out my right eye or cut off my right hand, it is that kind of painful event that occurs uh, in order for us to overcome. And then if it goes even further, it's an affair as a pseudo-spouse. At this point, it's no longer the faithful spouse who is making decisions about the future of the marriage. Uh, It is the unfaithful spouse who's trying to decide if they even want to be a part of the original covenant that they made. Um, But again, don't hear that every time that somebody sins sexually, they're going to go through all of these different progressions. Somebody can have an affair and not gone through the other steps. Somebody can look at pornography and never go on. But when we say, how did Jesus draw that connection? Between looking at someone lustfully, just objectifying a person, having certain assets and features by which I grade other people in my life, to having an affair, what is the connection? I think when we hear that progression, we can go, that makes sense. Not only does it make sense, but it is true. Now, at the end of that evaluation, one of the questions that comes up that there's no way for us to get around is we ask the question, is there such a thing as sexual addiction? Uh, And that is a question uh, that I'm simply going to say I don't have an answer to. Uh, When you read any of the secular or Christian resources, they love to argue about this, about whether sexual sin can be an addiction, whether it's a disease, all of that kind of thing. Here's what I will say. Every sin that we commit intends to be our master. It will want to dominate our life and take control and not let go of us. We have an enemy who is a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour and it is foolish for us to think that sin wants anything more than our death and destruction. And so we should treat it with all the seriousness that we would treat an addiction whether we carry the baggage of that label or not. Uh, There is a Uh, A 10 question thing where you go, okay, I I think maybe this may have gripped me in an addictive way where you can look at and go, okay, does this have some addictive qualities to help you see that? At the same time, I think it's important at a juncture like this uh, for us to define what lust is not. Um, Because we can get in and begin to feel almost overwhelmed uh, with a sense of guilt and fear Uh, When we get into this kind of subject and we begin to describe it this vividly. Uh, So a few things that lust is not. Lust is not just being attracted to someone. Uh, There is a sense in which as people who were made in the image of God to worship. We notice things that are attractive. And so all noticing of attraction is not lust. It's not lust to have a strong desire to have sex. We are sexual beings. Uh, That there is a time, particularly in our day and age, where puberty is hitting at an earlier and earlier age, and marriage is coming at a later and later age, where there will be a gap when physiologically we are able to have sex, and yet we are not in the place of a covenant relationship where there is an appropriate expression of that, and our physical desire will be very strong, And there's no way for us to just find that switch and turn it off. Uh, A third thing. Uh, It's not lust to anticipate having sex within marriage. Uh, If you are single, I don't think it's necessarily the healthiest mental engagement for you to have. I think it very quickly becomes a point of temptation. But to be excited about being married is not lust. Uh, It's not lust to be turned on without a conscious decision. uh, our bodies release hormones and pheromones that just kind of float in the air that we pick up from the opposite sex and we get aroused. Uh, There are times when, uh, particularly for men, you may wake up in the morning and just be aroused and there is nothing lustful about the mere arousal itself. Uh, And it is also not necessarily the lust to be tempted sexually. Now, what you do in that moment of sexual temptation... Very quickly leads to either lust or purity. Uh, But when we confuse temptation with sin, we begin to feel defeated before we ever start. Because unless we define what lust is not, then what happens is we're not fighting sin. We're fighting our very humanity itself. And we begin to feel very hopeless. And so I set that up here in the beginning because it would be easy to be so vivid and uh, even without meaning to heavy-handed in a presentation like this that, that we would feel like, I don't stand a chance. But at the same time, when we look at probably our own lives and the culture around us, even with those exceptions, we say, you know what? Lust is something that we all struggle with. Uh, and Tim Chester helps us see that. He says, in our culture, sex is everything and sex is nothing. One of the things that porn does is to make us think that marriage is for sex. But it's the other way around. Sex is for marriage. So what is sex for? It is first and foremost an act of unification, uniting two people in one flesh. That's why pornography, along with all sex outside of marriage, is a sham it's a fiction it's a lie you can no more try out sex than you can try out birth the very act produces a new reality that cannot be undone now we start with that and we say he says our culture says sex is everything and sex is nothing and we just say we can't have it both ways And our culture does try to say sex is everything. The big lie of sexual sin is that sex is ultimate. I mean, think about it. We only take great risk for things that we believe are worth it. And when you begin to look at the kind of risk that we take for sex, we begin to believe that sex is everything. We risk our character, we risk our jobs, we risk our families, we risk our heritage, we, we treat sex like we would trade our life for it. And yet at the same time, we treat sex like it's nothing. We use an adjective, casual, to describe something that jeopardizes our health, our marriage, the future of our children, our job, our ministry. We try to act like it's casual. We treat sex like it's everything and sex like it's nothing. Now Tim Chester also says it's a fiction, it's a lie, it's a sham. And that's one of the themes that we're going to unpack a lot as we go through is that the big thing about sexual sin is that it's a false story. It's a fictional story reality. And like all sin, we turn to sin because we become God. We become the one that we speak or we click and things happen. Everybody is worshiping and celebrating and enjoying us. There is this anticipation that somebody would be into me and celebrate me enough that they would throw off whatever shackles that God's requirements would place on them to pursue me. As always, I sin because I want to be God. My sin is an attempt to replace Him. My sin says, you're not good enough. And I begin to buy into that lie. And I try to create a world around me that plays by that lie. Or even I, or else I create a world over here and one over here. One where I get to be God and one where I'm willing to acknowledge God as God. And I kind of play back and forth between the two. It's what the James would call being double-minded. But we get caught up in that. Uh, now Kathy Gallagher, Uh, She speaks to a point here that I think is is way too often overlooked. Uh, She is speaking to women. She says these romantic fantasies. She's not talking about pornography here. Uh, She's talking about romantic based media. These romantic fantasies further increase the distance between her and Jimmy because they were a constant reminder of his failure as a husband. She noticed that the more she became involved in the novels and soaps, the more resentful she felt towards him. One of the things that we have to admit lust is not a man only issue. And too often, even within the church, lust is presented as something that only half of the human population struggle with. It's not. Now, it's common for men and women to struggle with lust differently. But just because, even if it fits the stereotype that a feminine lust does not involve nudity, it doesn't mean that I am not using a scoring system by which I begin to grade every person in my life and makes it very difficult for me to be content in a real relationship with a real person who has real struggles and real distractions and real concerns of their own. Yet, um, again, we hit that idea that the big part of lust as it moves forward is not primarily the images, it's the story. And so I'll try to give a, a definition of lust here for a moment. First, very broad, and then I'll try to narrow it. Uh, my broad definition of lust would be this. It is entertaining ourselves with anything that Christ died to free us from. If I take something that Christ was on the cross to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I will take this penalty so they can be free from their sin. And yet I entertain myself with that. That is lust. Now that is lust beyond the sexual context. Um... In the sexual context, it is entertaining ourselves, body, story, fantasy, with things that are not ours by covenant. Uh, Because sex was meant to be expressed within a covenant relationship. And that's why when we expand it to entertaining myself with things that are not mine by covenant, uh, we include the area of emotional affairs. Uh, Gary and Mona Shriver speak to this. They say, when you start confiding in your friend, things you're reluctant or even resistant to share with your spouse, that's an indicator that the emotional intimacy is greater in the friendship than in the marriage. When something happens and you think about sharing with your friend before you think about sharing with your spouse, that's another indicator you've invited someone to stand between you and your spouse. One of the best indicators of this increasing intimacy is sharing with your friend about the problems you're having in your marriage. Now again, not all of this evening is going to be about marriage, but there will be times when we begin to talk about this uh, in a marital context. And one of the things that becomes very easy to overlook that I think we can hear as we look at a quote like this is that lust requires lying. Oftentimes we want to conquer lust and ignore the lies. Lust requires lying. I'm going to make a statement that almost sounds too simple to need to be said. But if you are someone who has been caught in this sin, I think as soon as you hear it, you're going to say, that's absolutely right. Honesty is necessary for purity. You will never be more pure than you are honest. And why do we say step one is to admit that you have a problem that you cannot overcome without God? It is because until you are honest with yourself, with God, and with others, you are going to continue to live in a make-believe world where fantasy is more appealing than reality, where vulnerability is a four-letter word that you will not engage with someone in a way that it could be the blessing that God designed it to be. Now, it's one thing just to say we shouldn't lie. I'm going to unpack this almost at a painful level of detail because I think it is so essential to us making the progress that we need to make. I'm going to give you 12 different kinds of lies. Again, they're all in your notebook. Don't feel like you have to write them down. You will get hand cramps if you try to take notes of everything that I say. But first way we can lie, we can change the facts. The overall story is true. We just changed some of the key pieces. I say I was working on the taxes, and I was working on the taxes on the computer, except for about that 30 minutes when I was looking at pornography. Uh, I say I was talking to somebody from work on the phone, and I was talking to somebody from work on the phone. It would just happen to be my secretary, whom I was having an affair with. The overall story is true. I just changed the facts. Or I can't omit facts. Uh, The story is true. There's just dark spots in it. And so again, I tell most of it, I just leave out the things that would give me, get me in trouble. Or I put in false facts. This is a step beyond changing the facts. I am making things up. I am beginning to create this artificial reality. Uh, and so when I'm trying to explain why I was 45 minutes late coming home from work, I talk about a traffic accident, hoping that my wife doesn't watch the news or check the report. I just, I'm starting to have to make up facts presenting false things and then I have to keep up with it Uh, Mark Twain had a beautiful little statement he says tell the truth and you don't have to remember anything Uh, but then a step beyond false facts is false emotions if I give you false facts there are certain emotions that have to come along with that and so I have to begin to play the part I have to become an actor the only problem is you don't know you're the audience And this is where I can very quickly begin to become manipulative whether I aim to or not. And a step beyond the false emotions is an entire false story where I just begin to live as if the things that I'm telling you are true and I'm trying to impose this false reality. And I begin to isolate myself because I can't live in a false story and have a whole lot of people in my life who really know me. And so all the people who really care about me, they become the bad guys that I don't want anything to do with. Again, sin is not safe. It does not intend to be your puppy. It is a lion. It intends to destroy you. And it just takes these incremental steps before you see it. Now, you may be smart enough, and I say that with all sincerity, you may be smart enough not to go the false route with your lying. And so how how do I lie without going the false route? I minimize. Uh, uh, I talk about it being just porn. Or us being just friends, or I use this coded language where I talk about having a slip or a bad day, and I just I, I minimize what I'm saying. Or maybe I blame shift. It's true and it's bad. It's just not my fault. Maybe I blame my gender. As a man, as a woman, uh, I just have certain needs that have to be met. Maybe I blame my spouse. You weren't my biggest cheerleader. You weren't encouraging me in the way that you were supposed to. What did you want me to do? What did you think was going to happen? Maybe I blame my history. Maybe I blame my personality. Maybe I blame the other person and just say I was seduced. But again, I begin to put the blame somewhere else. It's bad. It's true. It's just not my fault. Maybe another way I lie is I say I don't know. In the court of law, it's okay for me to plead the fifth. In the court, in God's court, in the court of community, it's not. You know, sometimes I say I don't know just because I'm trying to buy time to figure out another better way to lie. But there's other times when it's much more manipulative. Where when I say I don't know, it's going to force you to come back and ask me question after question after question about it. And then I can blame you for being the nag and this all comes about what you're doing. Why won't you get off my back? I turned it on you. Wasn't that slick? Maybe I have a hidden agenda. I do something nice so that I feel less bad about what I've done. And you'll feel more bad if you confront me about it. Or another form of hidden agenda would be self-pity. And the essence of self-pity is beating myself up and using the intensity of my emotions to become a guilt shield from having to engage in the real work of repentance and shame. I try to show you how sorry I am, how emotional I am, as if that had anything to do with how much I am committed to changing. Self-pity is a form of hidden agenda deception. Maybe I verbalize suspicion. Now this is kind of the mild form of deception by counterattack. I can't prove my case, I'll change who's on trial. Or I slander. Uh, This is the bold form of deception by counterattack. Uh, the goal here is to intimidate you, to say things about you that I know they're not true, but I'm going to put you in your place. And as I show myself as the stronger, more forceful person, it just strengthens every other lie I told. Or maybe I exaggerate. Here, uh, with all the other forms of deception, I'm trying to shrink or hide the truth. Here, I put the truth out there in bold and I just blow it up. And I use words like always and never and you know, those kinds of things just to make it bigger to, to get you to back off. But again, I will say you will only be as pure as you are honest. And if you don't do as close, of an indiv- as close of an inventory upon your honesty as you do your purity, then your likelihood of changing is very low. Now, one final thought under admit from Mark Lassar. He says, The determining factor in what makes the stimulus pornographic is how the sex addict turns otherwise non-sexual material into sexual fantasy. If you're an addict, this means you must determine what is pornographic for you and not worry what is pornographic for somebody else. Um, That doesn't mean as long as you say it's not pornographic, it's not. It means if you are using something to entertain yourself with something Christ died to free you from, if it is as innocent as a cooking show and you find the cooking hostess attractive, if it's as innocent as as a daytime television show where you get lost in the fantasy of doing something that you shouldn't do. And you are using that to entertain yourself with something that Christ died to free you from. Then start with being honest with yourself and admit this is a struggle you are not going to be freed from without God.